The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a show that covers breaking and headline news, analysis, commentary, and I interview high-profile public figures. Uh, on each show, I also highlight an exceptional organization, such as a nonprofit, a charity, uh, as well as an individual that, that does great work in the community and is very philanthropic. Uh, today, after headlines, I have a very special interview with actor, activist, and environmentalist Ed Begley Jr. So let's cover some headline news and the latest COVID-19 numbers uh, around the U.S. 332,993 people have been infected so far. 9,528 people have died and 17,018 people have recovered as of this morning. In terms of states and infection rates, the following 10 uh, are the top 10 in terms of the highest numbers, starting with New York, New Jersey, Michigan, California, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Florida, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Washington. Also over the weekend, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, who had tested positive for coronavirus on March 27th, was admitted to the hospital. The two websites that uh, I just want to repeat um, in case you want to get the latest info, resources, numbers, the most accurate and updated are the CDC website, of course, which is cdc.gov, and also the World Health Organization's website, which is who.int. Those are the two websites that a lot of media outlets refer to for the most updated and accurate information. So let's talk about the strategic national stockpile. Now, the strategic national stockpile manages the country's emergency medical supplies, uh, exists to respond to a crisis like coronavirus pandemic, and others. So as the U.S. is uh, seeing a huge shortage of medical supplies like ventilators and masks, uh, and as President Trump is struggling to coordinate any kind of a cohesive response to this pandemic and keeps fighting with governors over how these supplies will be distributed, the stockpile uh, is uh, running out and it's also uh, created a huge controversy. So then Jared Kushner made an appearance at the Coronavirus Task Force briefing on April 2nd and made a comment that uh, had a lot of people talking. When asked about states' needs for supplies, uh, Kushner said that the stockpile was, and I quote, supposed to be our stockpile. Uh, he also added, it's not supposed to be states' stockpiles that they can use. Then the following morning, the Strategic Stockpiles website had been changed to de-emphasize its commitment to helping states and to downplay the size of it and the size of its inventory, I should say. This particular description online now refers to the federal stockpile as a short-term stopgap buffer. One of the unfortunate things that's happening is that in this chaos uh, of this crisis that we're going through, 
sometimes state legislators, in governors, individuals, organizations are taking advantage of uh, the pandemic and the fact that our focus is on staying alive, frankly, so that they can put through uh, a law or ordinance or anything else that would normally see a lot of resistance when people uh, don't have a life and death situation um, to get through. Uh, in this case, so last week, the Republican governor of Idaho, Brad Little, um, he beat the deadline um, and signed two anti-transgender bills into law. Um, the governor uh, approved legislation that prohibits transgender people from changing the sex listed on their birth certificates, uh, and a second one that bans transgender girls and women from competing in women's sports. Uh, he had faced a Tuesday deadline to veto the measures. Um, unfortunately and tragically, this coincided with the International Transgender Day of Visibility. So this is just uh, one of many uh, unfortunate things that's happening as we go through this pandemic that uh, people are taking advantage of it and doing what the, there would never normally be a resistance to it. Another example of a very tragic and opportunistic move uh, that happened last week involves the controversial Keystone pipeline. Uh, the big oil uh, used the coronavirus pandemic to push through the Keystone XL pipeline. They saw its opening and moved at heartbreaking speed uh, to take uh, advantage of the moment and the fact that people are preoccupied with COVID-19 and to stay alive. So let me give you a little background in case you, some of our listeners may not be as familiar with the Keystone XL pipeline. About a decade ago, beginning with the indigenous activists in Canada and farmers and ranchers right here in the U.S., uh, opposition began to something called the Keystone XL Pipeline, uh, which is designed to carry filthy tar sands oil from the Canadian province of Alberta to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, it quickly became a flashpoint for the fast-growing climate movement, especially after NASA scientist James Hansen uh, explained that the draining those tar sands deposits uh, would be game over for the climate system. And so thousands went to jail and millions rallied, and eventually President Obama blocked the pipeline. Now, Donald Trump, days after taking office, reversed that decision, uh, but the pipeline has never been built, both because its builder, TC Energy, has had trouble arranging the financing and permits, and because 30,000 people have trained to do nonviolent civil disobedience to blo uh, block the construction. It's been widely assumed that should a Democrat win the White House in November, uh, the project would be uh, finally be gone for good. But of course, uh, Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney, um, who is basically bought and sold by uh, the oil companies uh, who had set up a war room, and, and I quote, war room, to fight environmentalists, invested $1.1 billion of taxpayers' money to TC Energy to fund the construction through the year, and set aside another $6 billion in a loan guarantee. So this is a 
very tragic and a very ugly opportunistic time when Mr. Kenny decided that uh, uh, amid coronavirus, he's going to he's going to do what would normally see a lot of resistance from otherwise distracted um, Canadians and Americans who are frankly just fighting to stay alive. So we just have to be vigilant and keep our eyes on uh, these kinds of things. And hopefully this is not the end to this story and Keystone XL Pipeline will not, um, will not survive and will not see uh, its construction. The Blunt Post with Vic. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. Well, it's time to get blunt. And today's topic is a very simple one because uh, it is making headlines and a lot of people are talking about it. And that is lack of leadership in D.C. and in the White House. And that was supposed to be Donald Trump's job to be the leader and to lead this country through this crisis. My administration will take all necessary steps to safeguard our citizens from this threat. And his gross negligence, uh, his lack of leadership, combined with his efforts to deflect and do damage control, uh, continue to affect this country and Americans in uh, countless ways, from people being infected, some have died, as well as the fact that our economy is in turmoil. And so Americans turn to media to hear their leaders and see, maybe perhaps find hope, get direction, get information. And they're confronted with Donald Trump's misinformation, uh, with him contradicting the medical establishment, including those on his own cabinet, and really trying to find any opportunity to pat himself on the back, mostly for no reason. And so it continues. Uh, it continues. And now he has uh, put Jared Kushner on the COVID-19 task force, a person who has uh, no experience in anything like this. The record and documents will show that all of my actions were proper. So American people are supposed to have confidence in that. He has constantly made promises that he hasn't kept. Um, he has told the American people that anyone who wants to get tested can get tested, which even now that's not true. Uh, and it's unfathomable to think that only a week ago he was insistent that the country should get back on track and so that we can have a robust Easter and fill churches with Americans. Um, that's how out of touch he is, because he really doesn't seem to understand what Americans are going through. You probably shouldn't have anybody sitting behind you either. You know, you should probably go back, but I love it. It's so much nicer, but I shouldn't say that because you'll get me now. He is more concerned about profit and uh, his hotels and his investments and those of his cronies and donors and supporters. So let's get blunt. We don't have a leader, but thank goodness that we do have uh, other leaders who have stepped up, such as governors, mayors, members of Congress, and are leading the way. 
But as far as DC, we lack leadership. That seat is vacant. So let's be blunt about it. Let's get blunt. It's not easy being green. Having to spend each day the color of the leaves. When I think it might be nicer being red or yellow or gold or something much more colorful like that. It's not easy being green. Seems you blend in with so many other ordinary... Well, today I have a special interview for you with uh, actor, activist, and environmentalist Ed Begley Jr. Just a quick story. So last year I was, um, I had the honor and privilege to present Ed Begley Jr. with uh, an environmentalist activism award. And so as I got up on the stage to present this award to him, it occurred to me that if just a few people in the audience may not know too well about his work in the environment and uh, what he means and what he's done. Uh, I always tell people that uh, when it comes to uh, icons in the environmental movement, Ed Begley Jr. is above even Al Gore and Leonardo DiCaprio and many others who may not be famous, but certainly they have done all the work. But Ed Begley Jr. certainly stands out in this, um, in this arena. So when I was up on the stage, I wanted to make it simple for people to really understand his significance. So I said, uh, Ed is to the environment uh, or the environmental movement what Gloria Steinem is to the modern women's movement or what uh, Tarana Burke is to the Me Too movement or what Cesar Chavez was to the labor movement. So that's really uh, true for Ed. He's a very special person and his career expands for decades in Hollywood as well. I mean, he has been uh, a star ever since um, uh, St. Elsewhere, for which he actually received six Emmy nominations. He has uh, been in films and television and done theater. He starred opposite uh, Meryl Streep, Diane Keaton, uh, Candace Bergen, Mary Steenburgen, and Jane Fonda. And, uh, you know, he is truly one of the most respected and prominent figures in the green movement and is considered one of the first activists to put the idea of environmentalism on the map with mass public. He was basically green before it was cool to be green. So I hope uh, you enjoy this interview. Why wonder I'm green it'll do fine it's beautiful and I think it's what I want to be help me to welcome Ed Begley Jr. Thank you Vic it's so good to be here to be with you again here in the beautiful San Fernando Valley where I grew up and we had a lovely night in Burbank with uh Turtle, that great group that is making non-plastic straws. So I thank you for that, and thank you for today. It's great to be here at P KPFK, station I listen to often, always has important information that they disseminate very well to the people that need to hear it in the L.A. area and around 
the country, around the world. So uh, I like the idea of talking about a lot of the good news in the environment, and there's much good news to celebrate, but I don't, wanna, I don't want people to think I'm delusional. We, of course, as you mentioned in your introduction, we have real challenges, too. That, Absolutely. That we could focus on, and that could be the subject of many shows. But uh, today we're going to talk about some of the good news, and I think that's important to do, too. Otherwise, sometimes some people walk away with, a, well, screw it. What can I do then? You know, right. we're, we're lost. There's nothing that can be done. If you don't remind people of the successes that we've had, you're going to just have more failure because people need to know that as well. That's part of the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people get hope that, you know, every single person and everything that we do um, uh, makes a difference. And it's, as you said, it's important to remind people that it is making a difference. So, you know, before we get into some of the more noteworthy news items and developments, I want to hear about your recent achievements and your recent uh, work and some of the, the, the ongoing things that you're doing. I'd love to talk about that, Vic. Um, there's been a lot of good news lately that I would like to remind people of. I've, I've heard, and I hope it's true, that Greta Thunberg is in town. She's in L.A. right now as we speak. So I'm going to go to City Hall when we're done here. I heard she's going to be there. I hope that's true. I hope that's a, a real report. But I'm happy to take the subway down there anyway and see. It's a lovely ride downtown. But um, that gives me the most hope to see what the young people are doing, led by this courageous young lady. You know, it, it just tells you that we, we might just save more than we thought we were going to save. Absolutely. So tell us more of, you know, things that I may not even know that's been happening because, you know, you're the guru. You're so. very kind to say that. Of course, there are great leaders that came before me and many that have worked alongside me, many that have come after like Greta. But uh, John Muir, of course, was doing incredible work many years ago. He started the Sierra Club. Rachel Carson with Silent Spring changed the world with that book. Um, you know, there's been many, many people that have done incredible things for the environment, about the environment, to be celebrated. But um, what has happened since 1970, many challenges have occurred, of course, with climate change and what have you. But look what we did just in the city of L.A., not just the city, but the whole Los Angeles Air Basin. From 1970 to date, Vic, we have four times the cars in L.A., millions more people, but we have a fraction of the smog. Correct. That's unbelievable. And that happened not just with personal activism like me driving an electric car in 1970. That was a small little drop in the bucket. But the big things of, along with personal responsibility and personal action, which I've tried to do, there's also corporate responsibility and there's government action, legislation, good laws. And make no mistake about it, the way that we clean up the air in L.A. was the full enforcement of the Clean Air Act. That's what did it. That's what we kept different green groups kept suing the air district, what have you, and others. With the help of the American Lung Association and other experts on air quality and respiratory illnesses, they kept saying, you have to abide by it's a law, the Clean Air Act. You have to do it. We're going to sue you. You know, I know you guys are trying to clean up the air. You're good guys there at the air district trying to do it, but we're going to help you by suing you. Will that help you? What, what do we need to do? Right. And we did that. So when people talk about with some accuracy, well, we're not going to save it all with, you know, energy-efficient light bulbs and thermostats and Ed riding his bike. They are correct. There's three 
legs to the table around, around which we must discuss these things, make our plan, and, and put these plans in action. Three legs. You can't have one leg. It's going to tip over. You can't have two. You have to have three. The three legs are personal action, true, corporate responsibility, absolutely, and legislation, like I just said. Those are the three legs, and they all are connected. They all interact. If you buy more green products, if you stop buying the bad guy stuff and buy the good people stuff, that's going to affect corporations. They're going to make decisions accordingly. You boycott this one and help that one. That's going to help them do the right thing. And governments listen when enough people take personal action and do things. And governments certainly listen when corporations do things and are inclined to do greener technologies. The fear when we talked about cleaning up the air in L.A., I wanted to clean it up for many years. That's how I got active in 1970. I lived 20 years, two decades in that horrible smog, Vic. Mm-hmm. And so the fear was, and people said, my, even, my wonderful dad even said, Eddie, I don't want the smog either. I know what you're against. I'm against smog too, but what are you for? How, how do you propose to clean it up? And I'm afraid that if we're going to have progress and jobs and a healthy economy in L.A., that smog just comes with the territory. It came with the London economy back with a piece of smog that they had there. They burned coal. That's how you had that London fog. Right. And it just kind of comes with the territory. We clean up the air in L.A. and businesses thrive. That's what I can't say enough. People made money making catalytic converters that we put on cars. They made money making cleaner power plants. They made money, you know, having things you don't even think of like spray paint booths. You know, they used to do spray paint operations out in the open air practically where all those VOCs, volatile organic compounds, would go up into the L.A. air and make more smog. They don't, they, we stopped them from doing that years ago. You have to do that in what's called a spray paint booth where you keep those, that excess spray inside and you filter it and you contain it. And that's all those things, big and small, the way people even had their backyard barbecues. We said, you're no longer going to use bar- barbecue charcoal lighter fluid. What? You're taking your barbecue. You're a communist. You're un-American. It's horrible. <laughs> no, you can still, if you want your barbecue, you can have it. You can burn your coal briquettes, but you're going to start them with this little chimney thing we're going to sell you. Little chimney, kind of a, like a pipe with open end. You put newspaper in there, put it in, you start your briquettes that way, and you won't have so much. Because it all adds up. People right. say, that's a little tiny thing. Why are you bothering people about charcoal lighter fluid? You idiots, leave us alone for God's sake. Spray paint boost, that's nothing. They're all drops and multiple drops and large flows going into that same bucket. Right. And we did all this thing. So now we've done all the big ticket items like cars and factories and stuff like that. Now what we have left is the port of L.A. Have to still clean that up. There's a lot of dirty equipment pulling in in the form of a ship and also unloading and loading those same ships and trains taking that those goods to different parts of the country. All those things, there's lots of smog at the port of L.A. and other, you know, rail transit and other things and shipping areas, these shipping centers that we have. We need to work on that. Those are the two big ones left, the ports and, you know, shipping centers, you know, Inland Empire and elsewhere. Right. And we're working on that. We're going to do that. And we're going to make sure when we tell people, corporations and individuals to do the right thing. We want to make sure that there's funds available, there's subsidies available so they can do that without being harmed financially. That's key to it. We learned years ago, we, we tell you you've got to stop using perchloroethylene, you know, for your dry cleaning thing. Stop that by such and such a date. Different dry cleaners had different mandates and what have you. Well, you have to have a pot of money available to help these people, government money, which is available through taxes, that people will be able to buy the right kind of equipment so they can have a, an economically viable dry cleaner and use the non-perk, you know, system. 
And so that's what we learned over the years. We want you truckers to have cleaner trucks. How this guy, this independent trucker, can afford to get a cleaner truck? He can't afford that. Right. You have to have pots of money available. It has to be real-world stuff, economically viable stuff, so the people can do it. The small companies can do it. The big companies can do it. You want to help the big companies, too. You want to help everybody to do the right thing. So we've learned over the years, but that's a big success story, what we did with LA Air. And we have a healthy economy in the LA area. California is doing very well economically. You know, the, the economy is thriving in California. So we're proving that you can have a healthy environment and a healthy economy. And we lead the nation. California leads the nation with we, the environment. We do. We have for years and other ways before we got into some of the more interesting technologies that we have now back in the 70s. Jerry Brown in his first incarnation as governor and many other leaders in the California Senate and Assembly said, we're going to make this state more energy efficient, more energy efficient. This is what we want to do. This is the late 70s I started doing that. And here's the curve. I'm holding up my hand for our listeners at like a, you know, 20 degree angle off horizontal. And this is the way it is for the nation. And everybody, the per capita energy use, you know, went up for everybody. People got more computers and big screen TVs and blow dryers and everything over the years since the 70s, people just started to get more and more electronic stuff. So our per capita energy use for every state in the nation is like this curve that I'm holding my hand in a pretty steep fashion. Ours is nearly flat in California, nearly flat. I'm holding my hand almost horizontal. Why? Because we promoted energy efficiency. That's something that we did. Our per capita energy use since the 70s has only gone up slightly with all the new big screen TVs we bought, all the cell phone chargers, all the new stuff that people didn't have in their life just a short time ago. We've done that. So that's, that's been a model for the nation and the world, and we need to continue that kind of leadership. And we have that kind of leadership in the form of Gavin Newsom and the California Assembly and Senate, and they continue to do the right thing. And once again, I can't say it enough. Listen to me. This is the most important thing I'll say. The economy has been thriving because of it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for, for really making it very clear and doing like a recap of how far we've come since 1970, because we have all kinds of listeners and some of them may not be aware of not only how long you've been at this as an activist, environmental activist, but how, how far we've come and how much work has been done. So tremendous amount of work, as you said, into three categories, legislative category with government and all the the laws and ordinances passed, corporate responsibility and companies either being confronted with or just doing it voluntarily to change the way they do business. And then, of course, personal responsibility and people like you and others educating us, the public, uh, all the changes that we can make in our lives to change and, and, and change the trajectory. And we're in such a great place because of that. So there's so much to celebrate on that front. There is, and there's more that I'm going to cite, more success stories, if you'll allow me. Absolutely. The, the Santa Barbara oil spill was a horrible thing that happened in 1969. That got everybody's attention about the cost of oil, the cost to the environment of oil using fossil fuels and what have you. And that, sadly, is a, those kind of oil spills from oil derricks and what have you and other kinds of spills from pipelines are a fairly regular occurrence. Just handling something like oil, you know, Pipes tend to leak. Accidents happen. There's human error. Pipes fail. Derrick equipment fails. And you have what you have. So that got people involved. It happened in 69. That, I believe, led to the first Earth Day in 1970. Another thing that led to the first Earth Day 
was those beautiful Hasselblad pictures. This is before digital cameras, two and a half by two and a half inch negative, this beautiful photograph of the Earth from the moon, this big wow. blue marble in the distance, an image that we use to this day for like the Earth Day flags and what have you, this beautiful thing. And Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz Aldrin were there, and I think Buzz took those pictures. But you can see that Earth. People started to think it as a, as a whole, as a living entity, you know, that it was part of the web of life that connects us all. Right. People started to think in those terms, and that was very powerful. That was 69 also. So by ni- the time 1970 came around, people really wanted to do things. But there's another story I want to cite that happened in the 60s. And my, bo- my friend Bobby Kennedy Jr. tells this story. And it happened at the uh, Hudson River. The Hudson River was so polluted, you could no longer eat the fish. This is in the 60s. It had gotten so bad. And I remember these days. I lived out in Long Island part of that time. And I remember how bad the Hudson River was. And these Vietnam veterans came back from serving our country in the 60s, and they could not return to their line of work. They were unemployed. They were in unemployment lines, and they did not want to be unemployed. They wanted to do their line of work, a line of work they're grandparents had done, the great-grandparents had done. Going back to the Dutch settlers, they had done this line of work. That work was fishing. They could no longer fish. They served our country. They were fishermen, went off to serve in the war, came back, couldn't do it. They're unemployed. And they were so upset. They were talking about, I guess it's a form of eco-terrorism. They're going to put dynamite on a raft and put it into the they met at American Legion Hall. They're going to put it into this outfall pipe of Penn Central and blow up the pipe so it would back up into Penn Central's equipment and what have you, and they, they would teach them a lesson that we're going to do this. Fortunately, there was another radical in the room from a radical publication called Field and Stream, <laughs> and this guy's name was Bob Boyle, and he said, I've got another idea. I know you're discussing putting dynamite in a raft. Let's put a flag on that play for a second. Instead of breaking the law, how about enforcing the laws? It looked at him like he was crazy because it's the 60s, Vic. There's no Clean Air Act then. Right. So what law are you talking about? It says there's a Safe Harbors and Rivers Act, and uh, if you if we sue them in court and do it legally and and we're successful, we get to keep half the bounty from that lawsuit, and we can build and sue the other polluters of the Hudson River and eventually clean up the river. And that's exactly what they did. Bob Boyle was that writer from Field and Stream. Pete Seeger got involved. The wonderful Pete Seeger. John Cronin got involved. Later, Bobby Kennedy. Now it's a productive waterway again. You can eat the fish. It's one of the healthiest waterways in the Northeast. What a great story. The Cuyahoga River caught fire. Let's talk about rivers a little longer. Hold your thought. My apologies. Let's take a um, station break for a second. I want to remind our listeners that this is Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. And you're listening to a very in-depth and fascinating interview with actor, activist, and environmentalist Ed Begley Jr. The Blunt Post with Vic. I've been overloading thoughts into my brain Trying to forget that life is filled with pain But if there's one thing that could change my view Yeah, that one thing is you Come on Yeah, that one thing is you All that 
with Vic. We have with us a very special guest, uh, actor, activist, environmentalist Ed Begley Jr. talking about the environmental movement in general, but as well um, as the recent developments and gains that we've had. Ed and I are chatting about that. And so, Ed, you've been, you told us a very uh, interesting story about the Vietnam vets that were coming back trying to seek work in fishing and, and how that was handled through legislation and uh, making sure that the laws are enforced. Exactly. They were successful with that. And there's another success story, if you will, a horrible story, but there's a happy ending to this one. That is the Cuyahoga River outside Cleveland. It caught fire in the, in the late 60s, 1969. That was a thing like the Santa Barbara oil spill that got my attention. Wait a minute, we got rivers catching fire? I don't know about you, Vic, but I think it's a bad sign when rivers catch fire. Right. Rivers are supposed to put out fires. It's like the river sticks, you know, from you know, in hell or something, in Hades, uh, if a river's on fire. So they cleaned up with the Clean Air Act signed by another environmental radical. I keep citing these environmental radicals. An environmental radical by the name of Richard Nixon signed the Clean Water Act. Reluctantly, he vetoed hmm. it at first, but then he, there was so much support behind it in the House, the Senate, that he signed it the second time. He signed the Clean Air Act right away without vetoing it. So because of that, that river no longer catches fire. It's also a productive, healthy river. The Great Lakes were poisoned and toxic from all the mercury-intensive papermaking processes, all these phosphates we're putting out in the Great Lakes. We had many areas of the Great Lakes that were dead. They've rebounded. Life has come back there, too. Wow. A global problem. Let's, ju- let's not just talk about the United States and these huge successes we've had here, and we've had many. Globally, we realized in the late 60s, sorry, in the, uh, we realized a bit in the 70s, we really knew it by the late 80s that we had a problem with ozone depletion, right. with ozone hole being so depleted, it was growing and growing. It was going to cause a real problem. They had an increased uh, level of skin cancers in South America, where it was the most prominent. It was worse over the southern hemisphere than it was the northern hemisphere, that ozone depletion. And they and I went to Australia. I said, is this something the press is just trying to scare us with in the States? Do you really? And I talked to lifeguards and people, the beaches uh, at Coolangatta and near Brisbane and what have you, to talk to people in Australia about it. It's absolutely, it's real. You got to slip, slap, sl- what would they say? Slip on a shirt, slap on some sunscreen, uh-huh. and slip on a hat or something. They had a little three-word kind of ditty that they had when adults and kids went to the beach. You had to do that. Put on sunscreen, a hat, and a shirt right? because of ozone depletion. They talked about banning CFCs because of it. It was very clear there was a chemical signature up in the atmosphere that made it crystal clear like a smoking gun on a table that it was CFCs that were doing it. Chemically, they knew it. The experts knew it. They said it. And people said, but we'd love to help out with the ozone hole. The same thing they said about smog. We can't afford to do it. You won't ever be able to buy a refrigerator again. You won't ever be able to buy an air conditioner. It'll be too expensive. How will you ever do that? It won't be possible to make an air conditioner or refrigerator. Of course, as you probably noticed, Vic, you can buy an air conditioner to this day. Right. There was no interruption in the supply of air conditioners and refrigerators. They just said no more CFCs. There'll be another chemical that we'll use, and it will keep, you know, enable us to keep a box cool or a house cool, and it's going to be fine. It won't cost that much more. That's exactly what they did. Wow. They banned it, and that hole is not getting bigger. It is stabilized, and it's headed in the right direction. We did that. It's a global problem that we attacked because we had a mind to do it. Big companies, a company back when it was uh, IT&T, before they have had many incarnations since, but the head of the company, down to all the people just 
working in the factory said, we're going to try to find some way to eliminate CFCs from our operation. They did not make refrigerators. They did not make air conditioners. They made circuit boards and what have you, switching equipment for telecommunications. They said, and they would clean the circuit boards with CFCs. That's the way you did it. Just There's no other way other than CFCs to clean the circuit boards. Right. They found another way, of course, to do it. I'm going to take less salary or whatever we need to do. We're going to take it as a corporation. We're going to do this. They wound up save, saving $800,000 by eliminating, eliminating CFCs because they're expensive. Before they banned them, this is while well, they were still able, you could buy them legally. So there's always a silver lining in these things. By making our homes and offices more energy efficient, we can save money. And that's the key. That's what I've done since 1970. I've done it to do the right thing environmentally, but also at each turn, everything that I did, I was a broken, struggling actor in 1970. I couldn't afford solar panels or fancy electric cars. I could afford a cheap electric car, and I could afford other things that I did, a bicycle and a bus pass, but I couldn't afford the fancy stuff. I did that stuff. At each turn, Vic, I saved money. Good for the economy. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Those are those are really great stories that sometimes we miss and we or if we've known we kind of forget those huge gains that have been made through the last few decades. I want to go over a couple of notes that I made. One of them being that there's further evidence of decline of fossil fuel era. The Ford Motor Company announced that it was building the largest network of electric vehicle chargers in the US, taking the title from EV leader Tesla. Uh, I don't know if you heard about that, but I did. I is... think that's very good news. I love the competition that this lets people keep upping the ante, and then Elon right. says, "No, I'm going to make more than you," and Ford says, "No, I'm going to make more, make more than you." And VW says, "We have to buy the mandate because of the lawsuit, from the way we jimmied with the results on pollution. We're going to do more than the two of you put together. Let right. them have a wonderful competition. I couldn't be happier because the more inf- and keep in mind." The basic pipeline is there already, if you will, not the oil pipeline. That's certainly there. But the pipeline for electricity is everywhere. It's in these walls I'm pointing at right now. It's underneath us. It's above our heads. There's electric uh, service nearly everywhere in this country. And where there isn't, you can put in solar panels and create it. Put in solar panels and a power wall. I I have both. I have a 9-kilowatt solar system and I have a Tesla power wall. It's working so well, I'm going to get a second, perhaps a third so I spend even less time on the grid. Keep in mind, you have op- opportunities nowadays, like with the Department of Water Power and Power here in LA, I occasionally have to buy some grid power because we have several electric cars, not just one charging at home. When I did that, it was beyond the scope of my nine kilowatt system. So I bought a green power plant from LA. Let me make it crystal clear what this power plan is and what it isn't. What it is not is the old kind of plan we had in the 90s. It was very well-intentioned. And it was, you know, kind of a feel-good thing. People took title to an existing hydro plant in Idaho, let's say. They bought it. Some energy company, Green Energy Company X, said, I'm going to buy this Idaho power plant. So now this is my power, and I'm going to sell it to people. And so you can buy green power in this way. But what's changed, Vic? Nothing's changed. That power plant, that green hydro plant, has been in operation since the 50s. What, there's nothing new happening. The good plans, like Native Energy and others, TerraPass also does this. They buy and erect, create new wind, solar, or green hydro, small-scale hydro. Wind, solar, geothermal, they do new and put new electrons into the grid for every electron that you buy with your green power plan. Now, that's a difference, and that's what the Department of Water and Power does. 
they have a green power plan and they put it directly into the Department of Water and Power, the very grid that you get. People say, well, that's off there in the desert, so really, are you still using it? When you go put $300 in your bank in cash, and then a week later you take 300 out of the ATM, you don't expect them to be the same exact 20s, but it's right. a real cash transaction. That's what these green power plants are. It's not hooked up to my house. They don't run a, a line from a, power, you know, a wind turbine in my yard to the house, but it is connected to the same grid. So that's the thing. If you have a power plant, uh, you know, you have a power plan that is not, you know, just a feel-good plan that is a real new electrons going into the grid, then you're actually accomplishing something, and that's what you need to do. That's that's a very interesting information that I, even I didn't know about, that you're able to do that. So thank you for that. I think a lot of listeners would be interested to learn about that. And also at Edison, you can buy green power. Also, uh, PG&E, I think, has a green power program. Nearly all the utilities in the nation, there's very few. It's a much shorter list to tell you the people that do not have a green power program. You you pay extra for it. Right. But what better way to put your money? For me, it cost me another $30 a month or something right. to have a green power plan. I'm happy to pay it because my electric bill is so low anyway, and I'm not buying gasoline at the pump. Now that Rochelle has a plug-in car herself, we've got two cars charging at the house. And so, uh, you know... It's, it's just less money. You're spending less at the gasoline pump and you're spending more, uh, you know, a lower amount, but you're doing a greener thing right. by buying this green power program. Wow. Thank you for that, too. So I was reading that an Indian architect has created uh, an algae wall to purify polluted water without um, harmful chemicals. I thought that was really interesting. His name is uh, Shanil Malik. He's a Bartlett uh, doctoral candidate, has created uh, INDUS, a module wall system that's created to clean water polluted using dyes and chemicals with the help of ceramic tiles and algae. I would love to see that. Right? How I know it's possible to, to uh, clean up water that's polluted, to take not just gray water, but to take even what they call black water, which is sewer water. You can clean it up and make it you know, you can make it drinkable by right. the time you're done with it. So uh, it's wonderful technology. I'd love to see this technology. That sounds great. I'm really excited to hear that. The more of that, the better. My yeah. friend Howard Lutovsky did that. He had a version of that years ago. He had a bunch of water hyacinths and other, you know, wood chips and this and that and all these. They were all organic processes. But he was able to take actual effluent, you know, sewer water from a home and have it turned clean by the end of the pipeline, which is what they do also in a large scale at something called uh, the, um, what do you call it, the Tillman plant here in the San Fernando Valley. They take polluted water from you know, the San Fernando Valley and they run through a system. By the time it comes out the, uh, the tap at the end, it's pretty clean. They say you can drink it. I, I never have, but uh, it's supposed to be very clean water. You can certainly use it for irrigation, you know, for different uh, at different parts of LA parks and rec use that water uh, for irrigation and it's it's pretty damn clean and keep in mind the threshold is not that high I think they're talking about making cars to get the clean car standard the, the mileage standard I think is like 40 some odd miles per gallon you've been able to buy a Prius for years that gets 40 some odd miles per gallon easy indeed 50 something I've gotten 50 some odd miles per gallon regularly with a Prius you know, just going in the slow lane and what have you and driving at a, an appropriate speed. 
So these cars are available today and have been available for a while, these kinds of cars. But uh, some of the car makers for a while sided with us and not with Washington. Now, one by one, I think they're flipping and kind of siding with the administration on the clean air regulations for cars. So I think that's a mistake. I think we should all keep an eye on that and make sure we have uh, clean cars available for people and uh, it'll only improve our air quality. And, you know, there's a healthcare cost to doing nothing, you know, with emphysema, uh, asthma, lots of other problems. So we have to keep an eye on that. Oh, thank you for that. Just for listeners who are just joining us now, this is The Blunt Post with Vic. But I want you to stay. doing a special show um, about everything that's right and everything that is working well in the environmental movement and green living and being eco-friendly. And we have our distinguished guest today, Ed Begley Jr., actor, activist, environmentalist, uh, as a lot lot of people would agree, environment's best friend. And he's (laughs) been teaching us, informing us about all that's been done since 1969, 1970, uh, that has made California the leading state in the country on the environmental front, and all that has been achieved. Uh, It's a lot for me to even summarize, but Ed has been telling us a lot of it diligently. And uh, we were just talking about things that we should look out for and pay attention to, whether it's at our state level or Washington or even local level. So let's go back to you specifically. Like, tell us about uh, your own project, and it doesn't have to be about the environment. I just we we'd love to know what you're up to these days. I'm doing a TV show called Bless This Mess. It's a mm-hmm. funny show on ABC, and I enjoy doing that. It's uh kind of celebrates people in the heartland, which is wonderful. It's about a New York couple that decide to leave the rat race of New York and move out to the country and live the uh, the good life there, and they're going to farm, but they don't know much about it. They don't know much about farming. And that show has enabled me to have the uh, freedom of time and what have you and other resources to be active with lots of other environmental boards and to do things. So I'm very grateful for this show to give me the wherewithal to do some things that I want to do. Fantastic. What are some of those environmental groups that we work with currently? I've been working with the Coalition for Clean Air for years, a wonderful organization. 
They do great work. I'm on the advisory board of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Okay. It's the greatest resource that we have. These are more than half the living Nobel laureates, people with PhD after the name, that know about electricity, they know about weather, they know about alternative energy, they know about hydrology, they know about species loss, you know, extinction, what have you, how our, our flora and fauna are doing, experts. So that's the thing people regularly say to me, Ed, you're just an actor. Just shut up and do your job and leave us alone with your opinions. How can you do that, Vic? If I'm an actor, I'm supposed to go out on stage before an audience and do a song and dance, but the fire marshal has stopped me before I go out on stage to do my song and dance, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Ed, I'm sorry, you have to tell the audience, down in the basement, there's a fire smoldering. We're going to try to get it under control. Don't panic people, but just tell them to, in an orderly fashion, leave row by row. Okay, thanks for telling me that, Mr. Fire Marshal. Yeah. Hey there, da, 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 da. I can't go out there and do a song and dance. Right. I've been given this information. The fire marshal has told me there's a problem. The yeah. fire marshal is the union of concerned scientists. Those are the people. Right analogy. The, yeah. And so having gotten that information, I attempt to share it in a clear fashion. I have a keen interest and love of science. And, uh, and so uh, I, I do that. So that's another group, Union of Concerned Scientists, Coalition for Clean Air, the Thoreau Institute, and uh, also part of that group, it's called the Walter Woods Project as well. Don Henley, my dear friend, Don Henley got me involved years ago trying to preserve land in and around Walden Woods where Thoreau wrote and walked and lived. We have the greatest collection of his manuscripts and writings and what have you, all temperature and humidity controlled, and uh, hundred some odd acres that we've preserved so that's a big success for Don Henley and to a lesser extent me. Uh, the F Sequoia Forest Keeper, I'm on that board. Uh, I've been on, oh gosh, I'm on so many boards, I'm gonna bore you to tears, but I'm on a lot of boards. I try to focus and do what I can. I was on the board of the Midnight Mission for years. That's not an environmental issue really, but in Important other ways, one. it's part of the ecosystem to help those people downtown LA to get a meal, to get some shelter Absolutely. and to get some help if they're open to it. And so that's what we do at the Midnight Mission. So I try to help in every way I can. And there's much to be done, as you know, in many different areas. And the environment is just one of them. Yeah, a while back when I was looking you up and wanted to know the nonprofits and charities and boards that you were you belong to, the list was so long, I had to copy paste this <laughs> entire big thing. So, uh, but I wanted listeners to hear from you that at least the top ones that are important that people should check out and go to their website and seek them out, um, learn about what they do and, um, and be, you know, get involved to whatever degree they want to get involved. Even though I'm not on the board, I must give a shout out to Oceana. My dear friend, Ted Danson, has been involved with that group for years. I was on the board of the American Oceans Campaign when it was in that incarnation. Great group, Oceana. The NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council. You have all the help. You could get all the names. So check them out. Get involved wherever and whenever you can. And Ed, uh, mention your own website and your own informational. It's a... It's a little bit of when I go on your website, it, I feel like it's embodiment of everything. Thank you. Uh, it's something that I do with my wonderful wife, Rochelle Carson. Rochelle and I have done a lot of green endeavors over the years. And uh, it's called edbegley.com is one way to get there. Easy to remember, edbegley.com. The other one is, um, oh God, let me- Begley think. Living. Begley Living. Thank you. I forgot the my wife's website. Begley Living. That's kind of 
her version of things. Yes. And it's great. I've embraced that. And so either both roads lead to the same place, yeah. which is Begley Living now. It gets to show uh, all the stuff that you can do that's stylish and energy efficient and indeed lead platinum rated. It's a great website. So edbegley.com or begleyliving.com. The Blunt Post with Vic. Well, that was the great Ed Begley Jr., the environment's best friend. So you know that I highlight an organization, a charity, or even an individual in a community that does great work uh, to help others to give back. And so on today's show, I am highlighting an organization that just came about due to COVID-19. It's a very grassroots uh, organization that came with just a bunch of friends wanting to help and wanting to do something. And um, they were hiking friends. Um, and they, what they decided to do was to bring meals to those on the front lines, especially healthcare workers, people in hospitals and clinics, doctors, nurses. So they started to raise money and uh, get with restaurants and, of course, get the blessing and the approval of these hospitals, facilities. And they've been doing this. Um, and um, they're called uh, Meals for Healthcare Workers. And, you know, as I said, this has just started, so they have a GoFundMe page. And I know a couple of people who are in this organization. They are great, generous people. And they just uh, expanded throughout Greater LA. I believe Cedar sinai was just uh, brought on as another hospital. If you'd like to help a local organization that's doing things in underground uh, you can go to their GoFundMe page, and that's gofundme.com slash meals for healthcare workers. So that's gofundme.com forward slash meals for healthcare workers. Looking for quotes to read for you today, I had in mind not just the crisis that we are currently going through, but also compassion and understanding and help. There's certainly a lot of um, compassion going through. A lot of people are showing their compassion, reaching out, helping, donating. But when it comes to this uh, stimulus package that was uh, passed, after the, the GOP watered it down from what the Democrats wanted and gave a great majority of it to corporations and Fortune 500s, what we're left with is a single check for 1200 for uh, those that need it most. And in Southern California, we have a lot of contract workers and freelancers and gig workers who have lost all their gigs, their jobs, their assignments, and they were supposed to survive with 1200 for who knows for how long when you can't even get a studio apartment for 1200 anymore. So I'm going to read you three quotes. The first one is from Thurgood Marshall. It says, The measure of a country's greatness is in its ability to retain compassion in time of crisis. A second one is by the great Desmond Tutu. He says, 
A time of crisis is not just a time of anxiety and worry. It gives a chance, an opportunity to choose well or to choose badly. I didn't think I would ever quote Warren Buffett, but the third one is from Warren Buffett. And he says, cash combined with courage in a time of crisis is priceless. Well, amen to that, Mr. Buffett. At the very bottom, those that need it most need that cash too, and 1200 is not cutting it. So I hope that there is a second and a third stimulus, hopefully this time that the Democrats can uh, push more so that um, people at the very bottom, people, and that's a lot of people, that's not um, you know, a small percentage of people. So starting next week, I'm starting a segment when I answer a question or read a statement or comment from our listeners. So if you have a question uh, for me in whatever capacity that I can answer, or you just simply want to make a comment, um, add your voice, please do so. Um, send me an email at vic at thebluntpost.com. Uh, that email again is vic at thebluntpost.com. That's V-I-C at T-H-E-B-L-U-N-T-P-O-S-T dot com. And I look forward to reading them. And hopefully I can um, answer your questions or read a statement uh, on each show. I want to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, uh, who also composed and produced the original theme music for The Blunt Post with Vic. Thank you for joining me today for The Blunt Post with Vic. Uh, tune in next Monday for another episode. For more information, uh, you can visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter uh, at Vic Jarami. So Instagram and Twitter are both at Vic Jarami, V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Have a very safe, healthy, and successful week. The Blunt Post with Vic.